You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. I pushed the button, Sean. I don't know. <laughs> Where's where that button taking us today? I don't know. It's, it's red. It, it has a count. Down. It's not a countdown. What is the opposite of a countdown? A count, count up? It's just a, a, a clock. Uh, timer. <laughs> timer. There you yeah. go. Is there, is there an abort, uh, abort button here? <laughs> I, I, think there is. I think there is. We'll I mean, there, there's, always, there's always an abort button during a launch sequence because, I mean, you know, everything can go wrong. Just yeah. like the podcast. Exactly. We'll have our yeah. finger at the ready for that one today. Yeah. Well, yeah. there is a that that button that I pushed. It is now as red. It says end broadcast. So I know that if oh. I push that, I can stop this. But would you want to stop it when you're already up in the air? I don't a rocket. That would not. Be well, good. Um, it, it's a it's a very expensive abort sequence. But yeah. <laughs> you if, you, um, if you hit that, and it will detach you from your the first stage the the, mm. the launch vehicle it will detach uh your the spacecraft and its housing it'll rocket you up a little bit further and away from the the the, the first stage itself and then you just you know float down and your parachutes deploy but it's yeah it's very expensive because you're, tr- you're um, trashing a lot of cash Yep. Yeah, you just <laughs> and, and hopefully not, hopefully it's a nice gentle float down yeah <laughs> Well, yeah, mm-hmm. unless unless that rocket is retrievable, you just you kiss kiss that first stage goodbye. And even if it is retrievable, it's like you know how much gas you just burned up, and mm-hmm. gas ain't cheap right now. So <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, but then there is the old next generation, you know, with SpaceX that they come back and they launch yeah. a lot of them. So eventually, we can talk about that. But Sean, we're going to rockets. space. We're going to space. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are we ba- going to space? Battery rocket? What'd battery you powered rockets, yeah. Then we don't have oh, to waste man. gas. That'd be great. Right? Well, mm-hmm. there, there is some of that in, in stuff that is already up there. I mean, that's how they they get the energy to go, right? Solar panel, a lot of them. But I don't think that there is the energy to put enough, them up <laughs> out enough. of the gravity. Not quite enough oomph. Yep. No, in that, no. yeah. I don't think so. So everybody listening uh, you already heard the voice uh awfully you heard our first podcast together and uh it's matthew williams matthew thank you for joining us again hey 
Great to have you on again. Thanks. So last time we went into the future of education, and then we found out that you actually do a lot of writing about space. You, you're a writer mm-hmm. and curator for Universe Today, uh, interesting engineering, a contributor, stardom space, stellar amenities, and then you're also a science fiction author. So we're like, hey, please come back. Let's talk about space. We, we enjoyed it and we like this topic. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, my, my favorite topic, you know, it's favorite place to be. How how that happened? I mean, let's start with that and then a little introduction again about yourself more than what I said, if it's not enough. But mm-hmm. where did this passion for space come from? Space? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to say, but uh, I mean, I grew up in uh, the 80s, right? I was exposed to Star Wars, Star Trek, and and some of the best uh, science fiction literature um, around, and um, it just it always it always got to me. It 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 always you know lit a fire. And uh, by the time I was a teenager, I started actually uh, being able to appreciate uh, a lot of what uh, I'd grown up with. I was like revisiting all the the books and movies and stuff and realizing that oh i can appreciate this on an, on, a, on a new level because i'm now old enough and and mentally mature enough to appreciate a lot of what they're saying and the points they're making and somewhere along the line um i, I there was a class in high school that really kind of helped click it and it was uh we were studying sort of the the way technology and society are come together and the impact it has and yeah, I was just, I was really blown away by that. And uh, I, I felt like uh, when I when I got to university and, and I was studying the history of science, I felt like there's so much here I don't know. I feel like a rank amateur. I like that feeling because, you know, it's like you just, you just want to pursue, um, try to find answers, you know? And yeah, it, it's... That's it's my always- first question to you. Mm-hmm. Is- are, are the answers in space, do you think? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I think uh, the answers to, to all our questions are in space. Um, and it, it's not because uh, – it's because, of course, you know, uh, life in, in the universe is directly linked to life here on Earth. Our activities are – in both space and on Earth are completely and utterly linked. There, there's, no, there's no separation, right? There, there is this attitude I felt, and I've seen this a lot in recent years. That, um, yeah, activities on Earth and space; these are two separate domains, and you can do one or the other, but not both, right? Shouldn't we fix Earth first? Is the biggest question I'm, I ever hear, and it's like they're they're not separate. What makes you think they're separate? Right? And if we're going to succeed up there, any any success we have up there is going to be directly applicable down here but that's yeah that's a whole nother <laughs> um to quote uh dr cyan proctor she would she says this uh quite a bit and i've heard other people saying it too um solving for space solves for earth and she she went up on the inspiration uh, four uh mission there she was one of the four citizen astronauts and so I, I i quote that anytime i can and i'm always attributing it to her because it's like well that's where i heard it and as far as i know she invented that <laughs> well so I, it's, the, it's yeah. equivalent of all the research in formula one 
gets applied to sure. other driving things, right? So you, you have to have that yeah, other, other view of things. To- I I, th- I love that because you know I like Formula One, but I think uh, for space it's it's a lot more philosophical <laughs> than that. But, yeah. But you know, it's it's a drive is a driving force for sure for innovation. But I think yeah. that the where you just went, uh, Matthew, for, with the philosophical approaches to to learn okay. about ourselves, to learn about the origin of everything. Yeah. And I'm gonna break a news here: is not 42 the answer? Yeah. You know, yeah, 42.42. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe that. Let, let, let's let's stay there. So there is different way to to know the the universe to to explore. And one is to actually go there, which we know mm-hmm. is not that simple. We talk about the abort and the, the big rocket, and you know we're going back to the moon, which could be a, a topic for another conversation. That's for sure. But a way to go to space, the oldest way, the safest way, is to look up. Mm-hmm. into into space and and i think that's today should be the core of this conversation we said mm-hmm. we'll talk about the web uh, telescope but there are a ton of other telescope out there there are telescope here um, uh, i live in la and i did a trip to mount wilson where where hubble did the research you know 100 years ago when whenever that was and mm-hmm. it blew my mind just to be mm-hmm. in that place where these happen right so Tell us, so what do we see when we look up in the sky? And, and, and how many ways there are to look up in the sky? Not... Um, well, good question. So the second part, I think, first, uh, there's, uh, there's any number of ways, but the, the two chief ones are to look through ground-based telescopes, right, uh, here on Earth, big observatories, big primary mirrors, that are going to look up at the night sky and uh, and, and they're going to be, see, you know, our solar system and distant objects without the interference of the, uh, of, uh, the sun, of sunlight, right? Um, as a kid, I often wondered that. It's like, why is it that the stars come out at night? Obviously, it has to do with the sun setting, but why is it that they're not visible the rest of the time? What? How does this work? And yeah, it's like, well, light is uh, reflected by our sun. And when it's uh, in the sky above it, it drowns out all that background light. And we're seeing, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, once it, once it sets, and if you, if you live in a place without a lot of light pollution, you, you have the added benefit there. It's like you, you see clearly the cosmos. And not as it is, but as it was when all that that light first left all those sources, right? Um, the second play, the second way to, to see it is from space. And um, like you said, yeah, going to space and, and looking at it from down here, those are, those are separate things. But it was uh, Nancy Grace Roman, who was a, a seminal NASA researcher, and she's, uh, she's called the mother of Hubble. She was the one who first proposed how uh, a spacecraft observatory, like Hubble Space Telescope, how it could uh, be the best of both worlds. You send this this telescope into space; it orbits the Earth, uh, or uh, at a either in in orbit of Earth or at a, a Lagrange point, one of the the stable points, and you can. You can look and survey the universe, but you don't have to worry about um, any atmospheric interference either, because that's 
That's one thing ground-based telescopes uh, always have to deal with is atmospheric interference, right? As light passes through our atmosphere, it gets it gets warbled and distorted. And we can get around that. There's, there's uh, adaptive optics, as they call them there, which will correct for that. But otherwise, anything you see, you, is, you, you have to accept is going to be just a little distorted. So, yeah, those are the two chief ways we look at the universe. What we're seeing, um, <laughs> well, yeah, we're basically seeing um, space-time. We're seeing the past. Um, yeah, because no information that's coming from that kind of distance is current. So basically, we're looking um, through time as we are looking through space. Yeah. And what I was referring to about different way to look is mm -hmm. you know, there are different kind of telescope that sees different things. So oh. infrared. Yeah. Uh, you, you do like audio signals, uh, telescope, you do. A lot of other things, spectrometers and whatever. So, wh why why do we need that? And I'm asking yeah. questions as, yeah, thinking what the audience may want to hear, right? So. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. You're you're right. I uh, sorry, I, I I didn't clue into that. Uh, oh no, one. no, that's totally clear. Yeah. It's too much um, to clue in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, optical telescopes, as as we would call them, or, or the optical filter. Um, that's you're talking about visible light, and that means light that comes in all the, the colors of the rainbow there. Um, but as scientists have known for quite some time, it's that there is this huge range on either side of the visible spectrum that is not visible. You can't just see it. Um, and um, I believe it was Isaac Newton who did this. He, he put a, he installed a prism uh, over this little hole, um, and uh, so sunlight was shining in through into this room just through a tiny hole. He put a prism in the way, and so that broke the light into colors, and then the colors were then projected onto this table, and he put thermometers on them because he wanted to see if, if uh, different colors of light corresponded to different temperatures, and he found that they did. And um, But, it, it, yeah, the blue end, things were... You know, ever so slightly cooler down to the red end, things were warmer. But then one of his thermometers was not getting hit by any um, visible light, but it was it was hotter than than all of them. And from that, they realized there's something beyond the color spectrum here. And so, all the research we've done, it's like yeah, there's infrared, which is you know to um, on the other side of uh, the red end of the spectrum, and that's heat. Um, if we go on the opposite side, beyond blue and violet, we have ultraviolet, right? I mean, they, they put it right in the names there to, to let you know where, where on the spectrum it is. And, yeah, and um, uh, you also have X-rays, gamma rays, uh, et cetera, microwaves. And, yeah, it's like the, the shorter the wavelength, the more harmful it, it can be to you, to your cells. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's like, well... The human body can can uh, handle all kinds of radiation in, in limited amounts, and that's sort of the the double-edged nature of the cosmos and our sun. It's shining light in all directions and radiation in all directions, and some of that it has the power to give life and to to kill it. So um, the reason why we look in all these different filters is because um, the only 
smart way I could put it is to say we want to see all of what's there because if we're only looking at visible light we're only going to see what is uh, visible to us what our eyes can discern um, what is making it to us in spite of all the interference or, or dust and gas that's you know absorbing it so James Webb in particular it's equipped to do um, spectronomy it's uh, it's going to be looking at um, dust um, and gases and solar systems and formation and it's doing that by looking at the heat that they emit and then its spectrometers look at that and uh, and say well I, I see these chemical elements and that and that's going to be very important to searching for life um, because yeah it's like we can only really identify life by identifying the chemical signatures of it so that's yeah that's why we do it and yeah, in that respect, it's it's a it's a successor to Hubble. It's a successor to Spitzer. Um, it uh, there are other observatories like uh, Chandra and uh, Compton, which look for X rays and gamma rays, and uh, they're going to have their own their own successors in the future. But this one is picking up where where Hubble sort of uh, where Hubble still is. It still is working there, um, and it's going to focus on the infrared. And by picking out signatures of heat in, in the universe, yeah, it's like wherever light got absorbed and not enough, uh, we can't see enough of that being re-emitted, um, we're going to look in the infrared and we're going to see the bright patches where all this energy is being soaked up. And these things which we otherwise couldn't see are now visible to us. Maybe, yeah. can, can, you, can you talk to me a little bit more about what we see? Because there's the visible light, which we can actually see straight away that's that's yeah. us looking through a telescope right mm -hmm. and then there's the translation of what the device and perhaps some compute power can take that information and translate it into something we can see through, mm -hmm. through our eyes mm -hmm. so i'm wondering uh, uh, maybe at a high level how does that work for each of the maybe generally speaking and what i'm really curious about is how that information is captured because when i'm looking through a telescope it's real time it's through my eyes into my brain i might remember it um, mm -hmm. eventually i'll forget it and i yeah. think the value of this is the be the ability to record this information mm -hmm. translate it so we can actually see it as humans maybe refer back to it look at changes over time so talk to me about that whole process of translation and storage and using that data long term <laughs> That's that's um, that's hard. It's a little outside my wheelhouse, but I'll do my best. Okay. I, just, I, I reserve the right to uh, you know feel stupid here. Um, <laughs> uh, so no matter what you're doing, you're looking at photons, right? And photons have different wavelengths. You know, they they're a particle and a wave at the same time, right? And as they're passing through your optics depending on what filters you've got in place, they will, they'll register, right? Um, now, with an optical telescope, uh, you know, it, it used to be, uh, they would take photographs, right? Have photo paper there, the light comes in, the, the photons hit in this pattern, so now we have a picture of, like, uh, Jupiter or uh, Pluto, right? Light bouncing off of it and into our telescopes there. Um, but the way we do it today is... Um, it's similar, but the images are acquired by a computer. They're digitally rendered, and depending on the filters you use there again, right, it's like, uh, well, we're separating um, different wavelengths of light into different uh, filters, 
when we recombine them, we create a color image of what that looks like out there. And if we also have filters there that can intercept uh, infrared photons, and then, yeah, that's, that's going to show up there too. And uh, in order, to, rendering that, again, you know, requires a computer there, and it's showing, well, this is what, this is the pattern of the light. It glowed like this. Um, it's, and once you add color to that, and infrared imagery, you know, they'll usually, uh, they'll use uh, like uh, red, orange, yellow, and white there to show the hottest uh, points, and green and blue to show the cool spots. Yeah, once you render that, it's like, yep, that's, we're looking at this big heat source here. If it was something we could see, it would glow that brightly. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically what we're seeing. It's just patterns of photons that then have to be um, digitally or photographically rendered in order to make sense to our eyes. Um, mm. Yeah, that's that's the best I can do. Oh, that's that's perfect, perfect for my simple brain. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it, it is about breaking it down on on an understandable way, right? I mean, we we don't mm -hmm. we're not the physicists that do this kind of stuff, but you know, at least we have a grasp of you more than us, and and then we ask some questions. Some are stupid. Some are. Little smarter than other. I so mine are stupid. Yours are smarter than other. Pretty close. I've gotten pretty close. I should add that a lot of uh, a lot of images are taken. They're black and white originally, right? They're just they're they're taking in light. They're discerning between the presence of light and the absence of light, and it's just black and white. And then they will add colors to it in order to show, um, yeah, what parts of the spectrum were coming through here. This is how it would look to the naked eye if your eyes were really high definition, you know. And, yeah, it's often exaggerated, uh, but just to give you a sense of, of what, uh, what colors and what elements are there. Because that's the other thing. Light comes in many colors, uh, often because of, its, uh, of, its, of the chemical structure of what is absorbing that and radiating that. Uh, not, not often, always. <laughs> So yeah, if I see a big red nebula, it's like in real in to my naked eye, it actually wouldn't be look all all that red. But um, yeah, in uh, astronomical imagery, it uh, they would add red to it to say yeah, that's a hydrogen rich nebula. Mm -hmm. So red is the color that we would be seeing um, because if we look at it through a spectrometer, then yeah, we'd be seeing little lines on around the red end of the spectrum there. Um, which is, yeah, again, that, that comes back to what James Webb is going to be able to do. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about the James Webb because, mm -hmm. so you, you, they, they put a, a folded origami mm -hmm. on a big rocket and yeah. they shoot it up in space and then they reach in some sort of place mm -hmm. where there, there is a, a specific, point like the Lagrange point if I remember yeah. well yeah. it's gonna stay there it's only a million miles away <laughs> and then it's gonna be unfolded well it is already being unfolded successfully and now yes. they're actually focusing all the different lenses and I've seen the picture of what it looked like a week mm -hmm. ago and what it looks like today and it's you know it's like oh it's I'm turning the wheel it's it's getting on focus mm -hmm. and so is that crazy? I mean, you can even go over there and fix it like you did on the Hubble. If something mm -hmm. goes wrong there, that's a lot of money just hanging. 
So yeah. Why do we take that risk of? Uh, yeah, why? Why are we there yet? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I, I'd say that the answer to that question it's the same with for because um, everybody was asking this. You know, why are we still funding it if uh, with all the delays and all the cost overruns, right? And it's like, well, the reason the, the, the delays and cost overruns is, yeah, they have to make sure it works perfectly because if they send it up and it's not, uh, sending a servicing mission is not an option here. It doesn't have, uh, astronauts can't just hop aboard it like they did Hubble and straighten the lens out. And that was really expensive, by the way, that whole, that mission. Um, yeah, that but, was fun. Yeah, the, the reason why is the payoff. Um, it's a, this, this telescope is our most powerful, most complex, uh, most capable mission uh, to date. And it's going to be, it's going to be followed by several more next and uh, next to next generation telescopes. Um, but the capabilities it has are pretty, are pretty special. So it's going to be uh, one of our most important observatories for quite a while, I think. And, and, just yeah, getting there. <laughs> like uh, yeah, you you said it perfectly there. Are we there yet? Yeah, getting there is. It's like we we won't be even begin to really appreciate just how much this mission will mean until we turn it on and start really really seeing what's out there. But we uh, yeah, it's like NASA and all the people who contributed to it. They know what it's going to be looking at and. You know, the rest of us who've heard the descriptions, we have some idea of what it's going to be uh, making possible. So it's like, yeah, we got to get it there. Yeah, we spent so much money on it already, but that only seems to motivate us to keep going <laughs> um, because, yeah, it's like this is this has been too expensive and too big to fail. And the payoffs are going to be so immeasurable, we can't not <laughs> get it out there. Yeah. <laughs> So I was hearing a podcast the other day, actually, with uh, with John Mather, which is the the Nobel Prize physicist. That I think it's senior, if not the the guy that runs the old James Webb uh, mm -hmm. operation. And and somebody says the expectation is to show that it's worth the money that we spent to put it there is to actually get a picture of the Big Bang. Oh. And I think, like, it's kind of like, I don't know, what, what's your take on that? Well, um, yeah, it, the James Webb is not actually going to be able to see the Big Bang in itself unfolding. It's going to be it's going to be looking back through space and time to some of the earliest periods in the universe. Um, so we're going to see the results of the Big Bang for sure. Um, we're going to see the earliest galaxies in formation um, and the first stars, the earliest stars. Um, and yeah, the first uh, planets. Now, that's there is still a limit to how far back we can see. Um, among its um, its objectives are to, is to see the the first uh, light in the universe after the Big Bang, um, or the light from the first stars and galaxies. Right? Anything, um, and it, it, in doing that, it's piercing what's known as the cosmic dark ages. Um, we've had a hard time penetrating that with our instruments because it's like light from this period uh, has been shifted so, so very far. Um, it, it would really only be visible to us today in what's called the 21 centimeter uh, radio emission domain. And that is, um, yeah, that 
is that's rather hard for our instruments to to pick up. Um, and this this is caused by the fact that during this period the universe was permeated with hydrogen that had been created uh, from all the the heat and radiation unleashed by the Big Bang. As that formed into stars and galaxies, the light of these stars and galaxies dispelled those clouds, and so our instruments today are able to see that. Um, but so much was happening when the universe was still shrouded in all this mystery. Um, yeah, we want to be able to pierce that that veil and see the first stars and galaxies in formation. And James Webb is going to be the first telescope that is, you know, that can do this in a in a dedicated way, because it will be able to pick up the uh, emission lines that correspond to. Uh, um, uh, to hydrogen and or to the radio waves uh, emitted by hydrogen. Um, yeah, I, I ask the the questions that I have absolutely no clue. So thank you yeah. for for explaining that. And I know there is way more on the on the table than than yeah. that. But what, okay. what is the thing that strikes you the most about um, the Webb Telescope? Is that like you know something about the actual power that it has? The fact that we were able to place it where it is without yeah. controls or i mean i don't know but what's a yeah. big breakthrough here then then you say many more even more powerful are gonna come oh, yeah out. yeah well yeah absolutely it, it's power but what really blows me away is its complexity and its sophistication and that that's part of why it took so long to to get ready it's like we need an observatory that can be because it's an infrared observatory it needs to be able to stay very, very cold, so there's no heat interference that's going to throw off its uh, its uh, mirrors. So it's got to have that big, complicated sun shield, and it's, that's got to go through a big, complicated deployment. Um, the the mirror itself, right? The 18 segments, they're all beryllium and shiny gold colored. Um, those two, right? Those have to be all perfectly aligned, and it's got to fold into place, and then in the secondary. Um, uh, mirrors got to deploy in front of it and yeah it's like the only way you could send something this big up there is to make make sure that it can fold up and scrunch down into this tiny little um well not tiny but <laughs> smaller uh vessel and you can fit that inside the uh, the payload fairing of a rocket and launch that up but once it gets there it's going to have to unfold again and they had to do that on Earth over and over and over again to make sure that it would unfold the right way in space. So, in, you know, in a lab, they're doing that. In a vacuum chamber, they're doing that. And it's just like, yeah, we this, this has to be, there has to be no margin for error here. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a wonder we got, we're able to do it at all because it's just so complicated. Um, it's, you'd think uh, most people would have quit, would have given up and quit a long time ago. But again, you know, it's like the payoff, man, the prize. And also, God, we spent so much money on this already. Let's just, you know, let's get it done. <laughs> but that, yeah, that blows me away for real. Yeah. So I'm wondering what, um, how does that fit into the, the big picture of other research being done using telescopes from Earth? Um, does this oh, yeah. eliminate the need for some of those? Does it enhance that work? Does it does it change how we look look at these uh, terrestrial devices? Um, 
and maybe sure. in, in, innovate and enhance them in ways we hadn't thought of before? Uh, wow. That, that's a very, very good question. Um, yeah. Enhance. Yeah. Um, because what it's going to do is going to be complementary to a lot of what uh, a lot of what a lot of telescopes are going to be doing here on the ground. Um, there's several every time every time I've written anything about next generation telescopes, I always have to include um, you know the ground based ones. I got to mention the the big three here, like the extremely large telescope, uh, the giant Magellan telescope, and the thirty meter telescope because um, they're all going to be involved in this. Uh, James Webb is going to be very good at spotting um, extrasolar planets by the light that they emit, um, right? The light that's reflected uh, off of their atmospheres and their surfaces. Um, it's going to spot them with its infrared optics, and then these ground-based observatories are going to do the follow-up observations, looking very closely at them and saying, um, so that light we see coming from that exoplanet's atmosphere, what chemical signatures are there, right? And uh, Webb is going to be able to do that too. It's going to, you know, it's, it's got spectrometers galore, and it's going to see the, the patterns of the light uh, from those atmospheres. But the ground-based ones are going to are going to be doing this uh, as well, and they're going to have uh, their employ these heavy duty coronagraphs that are going to block out the, the light from the sun that's that would interfere with any readings um they're going to have their adaptive optics there to make sure they got a pristine view of it and they're they're going to be the ones spending lots of time in follow-up observations characterizing the atmospheres and that's that's a huge leap um because um, exoplanet studies have been about discovery for the most part in, until now. And it's like, well, now astronomers have, have been making the transition to looking more closely at the ones we've already found and already confirmed and saying, okay, so what's there? What What's the atmosphere made up of? Is it actually potentially habitable or uh, or not? And um, yeah, these, these new instruments, they're going to pick up that thread and they're going to say, well, we can see an atmosphere that's rich in nitrogen and oxygen. So that's a good sign. Um, and we're also detecting the chemical signatures of carbon dioxide. So it has a greenhouse effect, but it's a lot of carbon dioxide. So maybe somebody's there pumping that into the air with factories and fires and such. And it's like, oh, that's that's not only pointing the, the, the way to life, it's pointing the way to technology, to civilization. And they're a lot like us, you know, they're ruining their planet. That's, you know, they're, they're pretty stupid like us. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's going to be complimentary. And when Nancy Grace Roman telescope goes up named after Hubble's mom, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be Hubble's truest successor in every sense. And it, um, it will be working with James Webb as well. Uh, in that case, it's the Nancy Grace Roman that's going to spot uh, exoplanets in, in large numbers. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and James Webb is going to do the follow-up, but they, yeah, they're all working together. So nobody's doing everything and it will, it will ultimately, because of limited time, um, every observatory has a, you know, a certain amount of time of observing hours, right? So different scientific teams need to book time, uh, mostly they just consult data that was gathered during a, a certain survey. 
So yeah, the fact that uh, an, an observatory's time is very precious is one of the best reasons for having multiple observatories doing multiple things. Yeah. That, that's interesting, actually. And mm -hmm. I think we, we can start wrap with this because then you go to exoplanets. So you start mm -hmm. having questions about yeah. uh, alien life and why we do that and you know, a lot of theories out there. But let, let's not go there. Although I would love to talk in another mm -hmm. episode, maybe focus on exoplanet. Oh, oh God, but yes. <laughs> I, I'm interested in, in the space, in the time allocated. So mm -hmm. if you want to go and look through... <laughs> through the James Webb, can you do it? Who is doing that? I mean, apart from the people that put it out there and, and NASA, I mean, I, I was hearing that th there were schools applying for that, college research center. D do you know anything about how how these happen? Um, not really. <laughs> okay, uh, well, that's good. Yeah, uh, <laughs> what, I, what I do know is. Uh, um, there, there is, uh, uh, there are resources for this. So, uh, um, I'm posting their link to, uh, the NASA website, the NASA's James Webb space, uh, telescope, uh, mm -hmm. site. Um, and, uh, yeah, I do believe they cover who, uh, will be able to, uh, access information from it because of course, yeah, this is, uh, this information is meant to be shared and, uh, in terms of who who can't, I, uh, I I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> certainly, yeah, the participating space agencies have uh, have their fingers in that uh, that pie. There, they can uh, they can draw on that information there, and any uh, accredited academic university can do that as well. But yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure citizen astronomers are also able to access that information, or, or at least you can access, like you said you may not be the one that is requesting the task, mm -hmm. but you can get the data collected yeah. by other. Yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of who is setting the priorities, right. In terms of. Yes. That, that was more of my yeah. question. I believe. Yeah. That that's, that would be the space agencies involved there. So NASA, mm -hmm. absolutely there, uh, there, they will be saying, um, yeah. And in, in this particular campaign, James Webb is going to be looking here, 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 here. Uh, data will be provided. It will be made accessible from this campaign, and here's where you go to get it. Um, yeah, as to what requirements you need to meet <laughs> to gain access. Uh, yeah, well, there there are some. They it's it's not just uh, not just anyone can access it. But yeah, I have so many questions in my head because I'm not versed in this space. But we we don't have time to dig into it all. So I think we, we mm -hmm. definitely have many more conversations here. Um, yeah. I'm all about the, the technology and how things work and and uh, the data and and ultimately what the outcome is. And mm -hmm. um, I know you you kind of hinted to some of the things, but it, beyond discovery and learning, what do we do to actually take action with the information that we're that we're gathering? Um, does it impact climate change? Does it impact the way we power things? I don't know. There's probably a gazillion ways we can take this all spinning around in my head at the moment. But um, <laughs> I mean, just, just to get an idea that there are multiple types of telescopes and visuals and, and collecting that information, translating it for us to understand the uh, our ecosystem better uh, is super cool yeah. to me. That's a very good question. And the implications of that, yeah, are, are profound too. Um, in terms of what, 
like actionable stuff? Well, yeah. Um, for example, uh, James Webb is going to uh, be looking for exoplanets. It's also going to be looking in our own backyard for uh, for interstellar objects, for asteroids and asteroids that we haven't seen yet, and comets. It's going to be looking for life. Um, part part of the mission is astrobiology, so it's going to look at uh, moons like Europa and Ganymede and um, uh, Enceladus and Titan and and others, because the, these places are thought to have oceans in their interior, which could support life. So that will that will directly and drastically impact the exploration of those. Um, that mainly has to do with you know the future of space exploration. It's not really applicable to climate change, but it will um, it will tell us um, you know if any missions headed for Europa, um, you don't don't go through the ice, right? We've confirmed that there are biosignatures on the surface. They're coming up from the interior. Nothing can survive on the surface, but there's got to be life down beneath. So, you know, if you're going to land on the surface, uh, in fact, maybe don't land on the surface at all. Stay in orbit, fly through the plumes, pick up all the scientific data you can from them, uh, and and then just come on, uh, well, and then uh, transmit that back and, and crash. Not on the moon, though. <laughs> Crash in Jupiter's atmosphere, right? Um, yeah, it's like if, if we find life out there, we have to be extremely careful careful about the possibility of contamination. Um, and, um, yeah, if we spot any objects in our solar system, as uh, some have suggested there, they don't look uh, natural. They look like they're actually uh, probe-like or they're... they're they look like they're pieces of something that someone built. Um, if, in fact, a Muamua was a, an alien and extraterrestrial sailcraft, and and our solar system gets thousands of such objects passing through it, uh, or has had thousands passing through it since it first formed, um, and some of them actually stayed, well, then, yeah, it's like uh, we need to, that's going to have huge implications for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, I'm, I'm having a hard time finding an application for climate change, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, all, all this research makes us appreciate where we are in the universe. Right. So yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, looking for techno signatures abroad. It's like, maybe, maybe this is, will get us thinking and talking more seriously about curbing emissions. Cause you know, we see this on other planets there and some of them look pretty dead now. Um, we would like to avoid that prospect. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. You know, to, to, to end these, as we're running out of time, I would say, you know, even just uh, we started with the idea of the Formula One uh, developing then the, our cars. I mean, just think about the technology that he went to put and test and and, and, and the old design system to, to actually put the James Webb Observatory where it is. The fact that he's working so far is actually working perfectly mm -hmm. and he's not even completely all set up yet. I mean, all of that, all that technology, all that know-how, it's it's it can bring, I'm sure, somehow bring back to our everyday use. And for many oh, yeah. things that we don't even know. I mean, we know that a lot of stuff developed by NASA for astronauts, we're using it every day. Mm -hmm. uh, we sleep on it. We, we, you know, we do we do other things. So the, the, the full list, the full list of applications there. Yeah. Um, that since the Apollo era, yeah, NASA spinoff 
they keep track of that. And, and uh, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, that slipped my mind there. The, because um, John, yeah, the uh, commercial applications from all space uh, research there, right? I mean, these, uh, those, the technologies, the ideas that, that's made available for free to the, to, um, uh, yeah, to uh, the commercial sector to do, to develop everything from, you know, medical treatments and, uh, uh, and processes to, uh, yeah, just knickknacks, gadgets, and so forth that make our lives easier or more complicated, whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, no matter what, it's like uh, James Webb will have uh, lots of applications, many of which we're probably already using. Um, yeah, that will better life uh, for people on Earth, and that's always the way it's been. Yeah. yeah. So. And that's what a lot of people are doing on the International Space Station as well. And uh, yes. and yes. and then there is the other conversation about commercialization of space and a lot more sure. things. So. I'm yeah. going to draw a line here, Sean. I, I think we've, we've learned a lot today. Abort, abort. I'm abort. going to abort this conversation. No, I'm not yeah. aborting. I'm going to actually, I'm going to actually, uh, at this point, if you've heard it this far, it means that it was not aborted. All right. And we yeah. got to the end of it. Woo, We're just we pausing it. it. We're pausing it, Matthew. And uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll pick it back from here. Maybe we'll bring even some more. You know, maybe some guests to, to, to talk it over with us, and uh, and uh, we 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 just love to talk about space. So Excellent. I'm up for that. Any yeah, day. I'd love to talk about exoplanets. I mean, that yeah. is a wonderful, rich field, and yeah, I can't wait to see what James Webb has to say about just even planets next door, especially the, the planets next door. And by yeah. next door, it's everything is very <laughs> relative here. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Still talking about million of light years away. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's an app, uh, an app community for that next door planets. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, there is. I think so. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, talked about yeah. the dog that got lost, and they need help finding the dog. Mm. Find it, find oh. it next door. All right. Yeah, the the closest the closest <laughs> ones are just uh, just over four light years away, though, in in, in Proxima Centauri. So. Yeah, that is going to be uh, really interesting to learn more about those guys. It's still, yeah, I mean, that's that's unfathomably far by our standards, but in cosmological terms, it's right next to <laughs> Exactly. Nice. All right. All right. Sounds, sounds like we have another mission, Mark. Yes. We do have another mission, and right. uh, we're going to push this red button again to end this conversation, and we invite you to check the notes uh matthew will probably share with us a couple of these links so people can we, check already it out. we already have one we already have one we're gonna have more and uh stay tuned we'll talk about space and a lot of other things on its3 magazine and in particular on audio signals where we kind of go all over the places in space yep. too thank you matthew thank you hey, my pleasure Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. 
The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.